This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakya. As a board-certified physiatrist, I do feel like it's my day-to-day job to try and help patients avoid surgery, particularly spine surgery, as that's a majority of my practice. But obviously, not everyone can avoid surgery. And on Backtalk Doc, we've had several great interviews dealing with the idea of spine surgery. If you haven't had a chance, please go back and check out my episode where I interviewed Dr. Mark Smith about minimally invasive spinal surgical techniques. And also listen to the interview that I did with Dr. Joe Cheadle, where we talked about lumbar stenosis, and he reviewed definitely some surgical techniques as well. But today, I'm delighted to jump into the topic of lumbar spinal fusion surgery, and I want to welcome my guest, Dr. Hunter Dyer, to the show. Hunter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, Hunter is the president of our group at Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, and he's had a long distinguished career and continues to rack up accolades. His specialty interests are degenerative spine disease, endoscopic spine surgery, minimally invasive spine surgery. He also does skull base surgery, spinal fusions, as well as uh, many other things. Educationally, he went to medical school at the University of Mississippi. He did residency and internship at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. And they did a fellowship in pituitary and skull base surgery and did some training in France. So he is one of the most distinguished neurosurgeons in the Charlotte area, if not nationally. And he has graciously volunteered his time to help educate us today on the topic of spinal fusion surgery. But before we dive into that, for those in the community who are listening who don't know you all that well, feel free to go ahead and elaborate on your background and maybe share a little bit about your path to the field of neurosurgery. Absolutely. Happy to. So As Sanjeev said, I I did my medical school in Mississippi and then went to Texas for my training. I was fortunate in that my training there, I had one of my current partners, Dr. Tim Adamson, who was in residency with me there. And so he talked me into looking at this practice in Charlotte. And fortunately for me, it worked out great. We've enjoyed being in Charlotte over the last 26 years, and we've been able to build a fantastic practice. And it's uh, just been a great place to work, and uh, we enjoy it to this day. Now, in your day-to-day practice, what percent of patients that you see would you estimate end up needing a lumbar fusion surgery? Right. Well, I'd like to say first, you know, when people think of neurosurgeons, we're kind of known for our cranial treatment, whether it's head injury, 
other problems of the brain and for being a brain surgeon. But in reality, neurosurgeons spend at least 70%, sometimes up to 80 or 85% of their time taking care of spinal problems. So when I see office twice a week, the majority of my patients have problems of the cervical or lumbar spine primarily. And that is kind of across the board the way it is for all neurosurgeons around the country. Spinal issues are just much more common than cranial issues. Certainly when we're on call at night, we see a lot of cranial problems that come through the hospital. And we do see some in our day-to-day practice in the office, but spinal issues are extremely common. Spinal fusion is one of those things that we see really on a daily basis in the office setting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's the whole basis for the podcast. The burden of spine care in this country is just enormous. And, you know, we've outlined on previous episodes a lot of the non-surgical approaches. I had a fantastic podcast recently with Dr. Vermurray, where we talked about the cervical spine. I did one with Dr. Otis on the thoracic spine, and I've done one with Dr. Sumich on lumbar injections. But I will tell you, in terms of interest, there is no shortage of interest in the public when it comes to spine surgery. And in particular, patients that I encounter on a day-to-day basis, or even friends or family, they want to know just a couple things. They want to know what's new, And how quick can I recover? I think to answer those questions, it would be helpful to the listeners if you could kind of walk us down the path in a typical daily clinic. Someone comes in to see you. How are you evaluating people from a surgical perspective before you even get to the idea of discussing lumbar fusion? Sure. Well, first of all, even for a surgeon, the majority of spinal issues that we see are things that can be dealt with with conservative care. So everybody we see, again, even as a surgeon, we're saying, you know, have you done physical therapy? Have you done traction? Have you done injections? How long has it been that you've had symptoms? Have you had any previous procedures? So part of the history is making sure that they even need to begin a discussion about surgery or not. Now, as far as fusion goes, especially in the lumbar spine, there are many, many people that have symptoms that pertain to just a single nerve root in the lower back. And by that, I'm talking about pressure on either one of the nerve roots that forms the sciatic nerve. Most people are familiar with that type of pain that goes down from the lower back to the buttock and then all the way down the leg, typically to the foot or to the ankle. Some people have pressure on a nerve root in their lower back that affects the femoral nerve that goes again down the buttock, typically down the front of the thigh sometimes past the knee, even down along the shin. So when people have that type of a pinched nerve symptom, the majority of people are able to try conservative care first. If that doesn't work, there are many, many minimally invasive procedures where we can isolate a single nerve that's pinched and surgically decompress that nerve. The only people that we need to consider for spinal fusion are typically those that have problems where they require so much bone removal that they require stabilization of the spine. So spinal fusion involves trying to get vertebrae and the spinal elements to grow together, to grow bone, to connect a segment or two of the spine. So we try to isolate, first of all, have they done everything they can short of surgery, Can they be evaluated for minimally invasive surgery? 
And then if they cannot, is it something that could be considered for spinal fusion? One thing I would say is let's walk it back just a touch. And my audience is a mixture. We have people in the public who love to listen to the podcast, also have clinicians. But can you give us a basic definition of what fusion means? When you say lumbar fusion, help people understand what exactly that term implies. Right. So when we tell people or talk to people about lumbar fusion, often there's a misperception that if you speak about lumbar fusion, you're, you're talking about putting in hardware in the back, in the spine. If you put a hardware in, is that actually the fusion? And that's where the misperception usually falls. People think that if you're getting screws and two connecting rods on each side, that that's fusing the spine. In fact, what the hardware does is just hold the spine in proper alignment until bony growth is achieved. So the fusion is actually the growth between or around the spinal elements, whether it's the vertebrae growing together or where it, whether it's the spinal elements in the back part of the spine that grow together. Typically, people that have spinal instrumentation put in have bone graft material put in also. The bone graft material can be, it's usually bone that we take out of the spine and reintroduce to the spine to try to get it to fuse, or it includes other bone products that encourage bone growth. So I try to clarify that with patients quickly because it is such a common notion that patients have that when they get spinal instrumentation put in, that that actually is the fusion. But the spinal fusion is actually the growth of bone to connect that part of the spine to make it no longer mobile. That's an excellent clarification. Thank you for that. And then I want to respond to what you said earlier. What I like to tell patients is that you know with surgery, if it gets to the point where they have to remove enough bone, it can create an environment that's slightly unstable, something akin to if you take too many bricks out of the foundation of a home, it can make it unsteady. So what you're doing there, if I'm hearing correctly, is the hardware comes into play when you've made a medical assessment of the situation and to free up a nerve or two, it's going to require enough of an intervention that it could, it could create almost an unstable environment. And that's where you have to then insert the hardware. Is that reasonably accurate? That's exactly right. So we have two different types of instability. One in which a patient who's not had any procedures and has not had any intervention comes in and we can do x-rays of the spine with a person leaning forward and backwards. And we see instability where the spinal vertebrae are actually moving. And that results from degeneration of the joints in the spine that connect one vertebrae to the next. That's one type of instability. The other type you mentioned is that if we actually have to remove excessive bone to free up the nerves, then we are basically creating an unstable situation in which we have to secure the spinal segments. Now, I'm always quick to tell my patients, you know, one thing that's complicated about the spine is that every vertebral segment in the spine has a joint that connects it to the next. So people think, well, gosh, you know, this must be analogous to getting my knee replaced or my hip replaced. Well, those are single joints that can actually be replaced and can work in an analogous way to, to the way they you know, did prior to replacement. With the spine, we usually are addressing one or more segments of the spine, but there's still many mobile segments 
you know, above and below. So in other words, if we have to do a spinal fusion, it might be between lumbar segments three and four, and that makes that level not no longer a movable segment, but there's still motion in all the segments above and below. So one another common misperception is that if you have a spinal fusion that you look different or that you're stiff looking or that you can't lean over and tie your shoes. And of course, that's certainly not the case. There are people that have larger fusion procedures for problems like scoliosis where they could have a you know much longer segment of their spine that's fused. But in the vast majority of people, you're talking about one or two spinal segments. You mentioned before the idea of someone coming in with an entrapped nerve root, which then would certainly cause a lot of pain going down the leg. Do you consider low back pain? Are there situations where low back pain without the leg symptoms as an indication possibly for lumbar fusion surgery? The number of times that we do spinal fusion surgery just for low back pain is certainly much less than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. The reasons for that are we know that with the majority of the spinal surgery we do is essentially for leg pain because of a pinched nerve. Now, when we were talking about spinal fusion surgery, even though we're putting in instrumentation and getting the spine to remain stable by having the bone grow there, the first part of almost every spinal fusion surgery involves decompressing the nerves and making sure that the nerve pain is resolved. So I tell people when they're having a spinal fusion that I spend the first 30 minutes to an hour making sure the nerves are free, taking off the amount of bone I'd need to to resolve that part of the pain. And then the second part of the operation, putting in the instrumentation and completing the spinal fusion. But the number of people that we know from research and from years of data that we have to be extremely selective about recommending spinal fusion if somebody only has back pain. And the reasons for that are that back pain can be multifactorial. We know that people get arthritis as they get older. It's very hard to look at an imaging study and say, well, I'm going to do a spinal fusion at L3-4 because I think most of your back pain is coming from that. It's hard to localize because people that are in the age groups that typically would have a spinal fusion may have arthritis at multiple levels. We certainly don't want to offer a surgery when we can't be reasonably sure that we're going to significantly improve the pain or improve the problem. That's a great clarification. I also liked your comparison to orthopedic total joint surgery. It's just a different beast. You know, there's different physics involved, different uh, degrees of freedom and motion. So that's a good take-home point if you're listening. It's really not akin to, we don't call it spine replacement surgery, like you call it hip replacement or knee replacement surgery. So there's definitely a lot more involved to it. Now, let's get into a little bit. There's almost an alphabet soup of acronyms for lumbar fusions, you know, A-list, T-list, P-list. Can you kind of walk people through the different approaches to fusion and maybe some of those indications and what sets them apart? Sure. It's not as easy to do on, a, on an audio broadcast, but I'll try to explain the different approaches that we consider with spinal fusion. The spine can be approached from the front, the lumbar spine specifically. That can be done through a transabdominal route, 
So the front of the vertebrae are actually at the back of the abdominal cavity. So there are spinal fusion, lower lumbar segments, L3, 4, L4, 5, and that's what we call an A-lift, the A being anterior, lift being lumbar interbody fusion. So we can go in through the front, we can take out the spinal disc between two vertebrae, we can place an implant such as a cage between them, and typically a plate on the front. That's a very good way to have a spinal fusion that provides what we call an indirect decompression of the nerves. And by that, when we go from the front, we're not directly looking at the nerves, but if we take a very narrow disc space and open it up, we do create more space for nerves, and that typically will relieve nerve pain. So that's one type of spinal fusion. We also do a lateral spinal fusion, which is done directly from the patient's side, right below the rib cage. This is usually done in the upper and mid lumbar spine from about lumbar 1-2 down to 2-3, 3-4, sometimes 4-5. That is a way that we can also go into the disc space. We can put a large cage across the disc space, and that provides, again, that indirect decompression where we are opening up the disc space, essentially jacking it up where it's taller, and that provides freedom for the nerves coming out of the spine. So both the A-lift and the, we call that an X-lift, which is a lateral approach, those are both commonly used. The most common procedure, however, is done from the back, and that is when we go in and we have direct view of the spinal nerves because we are operating from the posterior approach. We can see the spinal canal. We can actually follow each of the nerve roots out as they go below the pedicles, which are the prominent pieces of bone that connect the front and the back part of the spine. We decompress the nerves, and then we can place screws into the pedicle, which then go into the vertebrae. So those are called pedicle screws, and then we connect those with short rod segments. So those are called posterior lumbar interbody fusions. Typically, because we go in from a posterior approach, we place those cages in the disc space. So each of the fusions that I describe usually involve placement of inner body or cages in the disc space, inner body referring to between the vertebral bodies. That's probably the most common form of a fusion done in the United States at this point. And again, you can do an inner body fusion from an anterior, from a lateral side approach, or from a posterior approach. Kind of leads me into my next question. Do the recovery times, the healing times differ based upon if you come from the front, the side, or the back? They do vary somewhat. I would say that the posterior approach, because we have to separate the muscles of the spine typically to get the materials in there and get the nerves freed up, that muscle pain is probably more when we do it from a posterior approach. From a lateral approach, there's not a lot of pain. From the anterior approach, there's some pain going through the abdominal cavity, and we typically do that in combination with a vascular surgeon because of the blood vessels that are, that are in front of the spine. So each of these approaches has its advantages and disadvantages. Sometimes people even have a combination of approaches. If they have to have a spinal fusion and they have a curvature of their spine, sometimes there's an advantage to going either from the front and the back or the side and the back. And those are a little bit larger type procedures, but those have very specific indications and can be quite helpful for the right problem. But, you know, I would say in general, there's more pain with a posture approach, but 
It's still the most common way because it does provide that direct view of the nerves. If people have extreme pressure on the nerves and they've got either disc rupture or they've got cyst formation pinching the nerves, we really want to see those nerves directly. And so we choose a posterior approach when we have to deal with that. Yeah. And, you know, I actually do get questions from patients about if I refer to one of my colleagues, does that surgeon do this approach? And I think if you're listening to Dr. Dyer kind of break this down, what's clear to me is it is a complex decision and you have to have someone who certainly has expertise in it. And sounds like this is a case-by-case scenario versus making a blanket statement that one approach is necessarily better than the other. It really is. You, you really look at a patient's problem and there's so many different factors. Some of the factors that we are concerned about are, what is the body habitus? Is the patient thin? Is the patient heavy? And number two, is the patient had previous surgical treatment? If there's a lot of scar tissue from a previous approach, sometimes that can make us go from a different direction. Scoliosis is important, so we frequently get scoliosis x-rays to make sure patients don't need something different. Because if you get x-rays to look for curvature in the spine, sometimes that could change the approach that we make. The other factor, of course, is what I talked about with the pinched nerves. If you know you can go from the front or the side and get that indirect decompression of the nerves, but is indirect decompression enough? Do we need to go from a posterior approach so that we can directly look at the nerves and make sure they're freed up? If we do a great spinal fusion surgery and the x-rays look wonderful and we do not get that nerve decompressed, we are not going to have a patient who has the type uh, improvement that we want. And I can tell you, after doing this for 25 years, we have no other goal than getting a patient better, as it is absolutely terrible when a patient has to go through a procedure like that that causes pain and they're not enough improved. So I only get satisfaction. I think everybody would say this when a patient achieves both the radiographic improvement in the x-rays, but most importantly, an improvement in their symptomatology. If they come into my office with back pain and leg pain that's refractory to conservative measures, I want to offer them a procedure that's going to make them better, not just the x-rays, but how they are symptomatically. Yeah, that's great. You're almost echoing when I interviewed Mark Smith. He basically made a comment that minimally invasive is great if it works and that's what they need, but you're not doing anyone a favor by basically under-operating, so to speak. So the, the primary goal he had emphasized is clinical improvement, and these are different surgical techniques and tools we have available, but he felt like his job, as you just basically articulated is to keep his eye on the ball and help the patient get better and use what's most appropriate. And that's, you know, I, I talk with patients about that where I mentioned I want to refer you on to surgery and they're like, well, I don't want to have anything done major. And I said, well, no one wants to. But at the end of the day, the deal breaker is living a life of disability, poor function and chronic pain. That's the deal breaker to me. So I'm glad you articulated it in that way. I think that's a lens we should be looking at these problems through. now. Someone's come to you, you've done, let's say, a one-level fusion, let's say between L4 and L5. People want to know, how long am I out? What's kind of your talking points for the recovery piece? Are we talking three to six months, lifting restrictions? Kind of break that down for us. Right. I would say with the standard posterior approach, I usually tell people that they can expect to have the muscle-type pain for 
anywhere from 10 days to two weeks typically. Now, those people are obviously not in a hospital setting for that period of time. So they usually go home with some medication and with muscle relaxers. We do have them ambulating even the first day after surgery. So if they have their surgery as an inpatient in the hospital, they're usually getting up the next day with physical therapy. I did two lumbar fusions today, and I told both of them they would be up either later today or in the morning. It's very important for them to get up moving quickly. The muscle pain is treated with medication. It certainly is somewhat worse right after surgery than what you experienced before. So I'm careful to to make sure my patients know that in the first you know few days or the first week, they shouldn't be terribly alarmed that they have more pain really than they did before. Maybe not the nerve pain, hopefully, but they've got pain localized to the back muscles and to the back. And that is simply post-operative pain. So typically that gets better. I tell people that they can expect to be really at three to four weeks to recognize that they're much better than they were before surgery and to expect to be sort of really feel like they're over the surgery as far as energy level, getting up and around, not having that type of pain that they had before at the two-month period. Fantastic. I also tell people that, you know, as far as the spinal fusion, it depends on the age. You know, spinal fusion, we talked about growing bone in the spine around the area that's operated. And that depends entirely on your bone metabolism, which is variable in everybody. If we have to do a spinal fusion on somebody that's very young in their 20s or 30s, which would be unusual, they would likely form a fusion very quickly, possibly in 30 to 45 days. If we do it in somebody in their 40s or 50s, it's a little bit longer. If we have to do spinal fusion in somebody that has marginal bone metabolism or doesn't grow bone as well, perhaps in their perimenopausal age or even older, then we're looking at following x-rays sometimes for six months or even a year to make sure that we achieve adequate bony healing. Yeah, this is where the idea of healthy lifestyle comes into play. And I discuss with patients all the time that it's so important to eat well, get adequate nutrition, weight-bearing exercise. And even if those things don't fix your back pain, let's say you do end up down the road needing surgery and uh, potentially a fusion. What you just outlined there, healthy bone metabolism, that is largely driven by the food we eat, the exercise, and you know, not smoking and things like that. So that's why I like to talk about you know, the lifestyle piece on this show quite a bit because I see it play out day to day. So now let's say people have done well, they're about one to two months out. Do you typically recommend physical therapy or is that kind of case by case? I would say the majority of patients that have spinal fusion, regardless of the approach, they do benefit from physical therapy. We do it in the hospital setting while they're there, typically let the wound heal and let them get a little bit over the muscle soreness before we put them in to more aggressive therapy. But I think it allows them to progress at a faster rate. I think it does help improvement after surgery. Surgeons and physiatrists, for the most part, don't know all the exercises, the muscle conditioning, the things that we should tell patients as they're recovering. So patients like to come in and ask us, you know, well, should I do this stretch or should I do that? What's the best way that I should sleep? How should I learn to walk on the steps? And then physical therapists are experts in that. So I do encourage patients to do that. And I would say the vast majority do that after spinal fusion. 
Let's talk a little bit on an issue that comes up for sure across the spinal literature in the decision-making process. I really want to get your opinion on the concept of adjacent level disc disease because I'm asked quite a bit, all right, so what's the downside potentially of, of having my spine fused? This comes up. So I'd love to get your opinion on how big of an issue in the lumbar spine is the concept of adjacent level disease. I guess first, if you could kind of define that for the listeners who aren't aware of it, and then just kind of give us your opinion from your years of clinical practice. Sure. So this is a very important topic, and it comes up really with all patients that need either cervical or lumbar spinal fusion. What we're talking about is identifying the exact problem in a patient. So as an example, if we see a patient who's got instability between the fourth and fifth lumbar vertebrae, say they just had a weakness in their spine and developed what's called a spondylolisthesis, and one vertebrae is slightly in front of the other one. We know from years of research and data and many, many papers have been written that when a patient finally fails all efforts at conservative measures and they've got back typically and leg pain, the treatment for a spondylolisthesis is to fuse that level, decompress the nerves, place screws in to secure the L4 and L5 vertebrae. But we have to warn the patients, depending on what age they are and how the health of their spine is at the levels next door to that. So if it's L4 and L5 getting fused together, what happens with L3 and L4 over the next 10 to 20 years? What happens with L5-S1, which is the disc space below L4-5? So that's what we're talking about with adjacent level problems. And the reason for that is, Sanji, this is again goes back to the analogy of the hip replacement or the shoulder replacement or the knee replacement. Those are surgeries for single joint levels. So when you have a spinal surgery, and if it's a fusion, it's not exactly the same as getting an artificial joint, but you're treating that one problematic area of the spine. If you fuse the L4-5 level, that level no longer bends or moves. So as a result, there are increased stresses on the adjacent levels as we get older. Now, if we start out before this surgery and we look at the imaging study and the L3-4 level looks normal, the L5-S1 level looks normal, then it's probably not likely more than 10-12% risk over time that an adjacent level could become worse. The risk factors for adjacent level disease or developing something later on, the biggest risk would be if you're having to have a level fused and the next level is somewhat abnormal. It may not be bad enough to consider fusing two levels of the spine, but it might be somewhat abnormal. We know that smoking is a big risk factor for spinal issues, both in the neck and the back. We typically do not like to even consider spinal fusion if somebody is using tobacco. But if they've used it in the past, it's likely that they get the generation of the disc, and that can lead to accelerated adjacent level problems. There are other risk factors, including the size of the patient, the general nutrition that you talked about, conditioning, keeping the core muscles strong. So all of those things can be somewhat regulated, but not entirely. I mean, we have patients that are extremely healthy, thin, and do everything right don't put their back at risk, but still can end up with adjacent level problems, hopefully not soon after a fusion, but more likely 
five, 10, 15 years after they've had a spinal fusion. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky topic to navigate. Kind of how I describe it to people. If I have a patient who's really struggling with a proven lumbar radiculopathy, and let's say we've we've done conservative care, but we have EMG findings and they have denervation or evidence of nerve damage, I can tell them what I think is guaranteed to happen if you don't do anything, which would be pain, disability, nerve injury, maybe foot drop. And that I think is fairly certain you're going to have to deal with. In terms of lumbar fusion, there's a possibility that just based upon the physics that over time you'll have to have extension or or further surgery. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's a probability at this point. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I mean, we, we do many, many fusions without people having adjacent level problems. But there are people that, that have it, and I think they need to be warned about it. I tell people, I don't have a line of patients out the front door of my office building waiting on a spinal fusion, because spinal fusion does change the native anatomy. It makes a normally mobile segment stiff. So if you're fusing two vertebrae together, we're only doing that because of recalcitrant pain, people that have had previous surgery and, and had, had failure. So the reasons that we do spinal fusion are really, you know, somewhat last resort, although in many, many people, it can be a complete game changer. And, you know, we've seen pro athletes return to sports. We've seen weekend athletes return to everything they want to do. And having a spinal fusion, a lot of times patients assume that that type of surgery would keep them from doing many of their normal activities. But I would say that many, many people are able to return to everything they want to do. I totally agree with that. And again, it's it's certainly not a decision you take lightly. Uh, If you're just tuning in, we're wrapping up our our show today, interview with Dr. Hunter Dyer, where he's breaking down everything you need to know about lumbar fusion surgery. I want to ask you a question and just kind of get your opinion on it. Why do you think in the community, and this is just my perception, and you could tell me you disagree with it. In the community, uh, particularly with, I say clinicians, non-specialists, maybe primary care docs, the word fusion surgery has somewhat of a negative connotation. And for example, my brother is a hospitalist, internal medicine physician in Cincinnati. And when we talk about it, spinal fusions and his thoughts on it are, man, I think they're overdone. So where do you think this comes from? And uh, you know, what would kind of be a reaction to that? Well, a couple of things. I would say one notion that presented itself in years past was when spinal fusion techniques really developed over the last 20 years. Initially, I do think surgeons did it too frequently. And a lot of times they were doing that for back pain when people didn't have significant leg pain. And so the lessons we learned on that were we could make x-rays look better and we could make MRIs look better, but if people didn't have a significant component of leg pain, probably should be strong consideration to not do in spinal fusion. I think another notion in the public is when people meet somebody who's had neck or back surgery, they do sometimes hear a story that they've had multiple procedures. And that's not necessarily because they did poorly with whatever surgery they did, but because the spine is made up of so many different segments. So you can have a disc rupture when you're 35 at the L45 level. You get a pinched nerve, doesn't get better with conservative care. 
you have surgical treatment and it resolves the pain. Five years later, you could have a disc that gave you trouble in your neck or a different level in the lumbar spine. But your neighbor, all they hear is you're back in the spine surgeon's office. Well, that's just, that's part of the reason that the human spine is very complex because you've got seven cervical segments and 12 thoracic segments and five lumbar segments. So these are all each individual disc levels that can affect a nerve. And all of us, in fact, as we get older, it's really rare that we don't experience back pain or neck pain or nerve pain in our lifetime. It happens to almost all Americans. There are different reasons that that word gets out there that, you know, whatever you can do, try to avoid spine surgery. I totally agree with that. I tell all my patients, if we can keep you out of the OR, that's what we want to do. Nobody wants to have surgery for anything. But ultimately, a lot of people need to have it. And fortunately, most people are significantly improved. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. As we kind of wrap up, you know, where are we heading in the future with spine surgery from a technology perspective? And you know, with regards to lumbar fusion, are there some things that we should be looking out for? Well, I think we've seen incredible progress over the last five years, especially when I spoke about anterior, lateral, and posterior fusion techniques. I'm not even getting into the fact that we can now do this minimally invasive. We can put screws in without making larger incisions. So there are newer techniques that we do. There also are incredible advances in what we call navigation. So basically with navigation, we can take an imaging study and we can take the imaging study and basically attach the instruments to the imaging study. In other words, we can take a screwdriver off the back table and when we put it on the patient's spine, we, we can look at the screen and see the MRI or CT images to know exactly where to put the screw. The other thing that's come along is we're doing some of these surgeries with robotics now. So we can use robotic tools that, again, use the navigation systems, place the pedicle screws into the proper position. So the advances in technology have been remarkable, really, in, in many, many surgical specialties. In spine surgery, we're seeing a very steep increase in navigation tools that make the surgery safer, more precise. We can make smaller incisions. We see spinal fractures all the time over at the hospital at the trauma center, and we're able to fix many of the spinal fractures with less invasive techniques than we did in the past. These make for usually quicker healing and less pain. And for many people, it's just a better thing all around. So what else might be coming? You know, we certainly wonder whether there will be more injectable treatments. Will there be things that allow us to avoid placing as much instrumentation over time? I think there are evolving techniques with that, and we're excited about that. Innovation is really the key in, in the surgical specialties. We really depend on innovation to get things better. And in my 25 years, it's been nothing short of remarkable to watch the progress that we've seen with device companies. You know, the technology is just uh, fascinating. And in the surgical field, as in, in physiatry and others, we're learning every day, which is great for patients and, and great for us. Definitely exciting times. And if you want to learn a little more, I did a 
podcast interview with Dr. Chris Holland on the idea of robotics specifically. So we'll link to that in the show notes. So I think the take home is just stay tuned. If you're out there, there are brilliant minds working every day to advance the field of surgical and non-surgical spine care. Hunter, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate you taking time to talk about this. As we kind of wrap up, I always like to share with our listeners just some general health tips. I mean, you are, you know, you're president of our group and, you know, by all accounts, you know, we're a big group and we're not so easy to manage. You you tackle that, you're on numerous executive committees, hospital committees, different boards. So you don't get to be in a successful position without having some personal health strategies or, you know, daily routines or health habits, lifestyle habits. Is there any tips that you want to kind of share that with the listeners that you have done over the years that's helped you that someone else could benefit from? Sure. Well, you know, I think like a lot of surgeons, I'm lucky in that I don't require a ton of sleep, but I get, I get the sleep that I need and I do remain active all the time. I'm not the best example of somebody who's an extremely regular exercise person, but I stay on the go and I think my metabolism stays at a high rate, which helps. And then, you know, I lean on having great family support. I've got a great wife and kids. And and also, you know, the key to to any great job or, or being good at what you do is I absolutely love what I do. So I wake up every single day excited to see what I've got for the day to see if I can help people uh, surgically, to see if I can help people in the clinic. And that's why, you know, we love being physicians and we love being in healthcare because it's just so rewarding. There's no year in which it was better exemplified than, you know, from all the people that are in healthcare that have helped patients in crisis with COVID. And certainly as as a neurosurgeon, I would say my role in that was very minimal, but it points out just how great it is to be in healthcare. To me, there's no better, there's no better thing to do in a life. I totally agree with that. And I'll kind of close with a story. I don't know if you recall, if people really are trying to understand a little more about you, but when I joined the group, I think it was within a few months we had our, our retreat. And folks, I get paired up with Hunter for some golf. And I am not a golfer. And I asked him, we're about to we're about to tee off. And I don't know if you recall, I was like, you know, do you play? And you're like, ah, a little bit. So you teed up and you took your swing and the ball went on a, a straight line about 300 yards. I don't know how far because I couldn't see it anymore. It had gone so far. And you just bent over and you picked up your tee and you're like, hmm, kind of like a lucky shot, right? So that, I'm pretty nervous. I just joined the group and I think everyone else was watching us because we're the first pair. And I put the ball down and I tee off and thank the Lord, I actually hit the ball and it went straight, probably about 160 yards. And everyone else kind of moved on. And once you know it, that was the only time the entire day that I hit the ball flush. And you were so gracious with it. I think by the 16th hole, you had me at least driving a cart because I'd run out of balls. But you don't know that. But I went home and I told my wife, I was like, don't unpack because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. <laughs> well, if we if we chose our physicians based on their golf skills, it'd be a very small group. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, it's good. I, I know you love to play golf and tennis and other things. So staying active is a big part of, of staying healthy and on top of things. So absolutely. thanks again today for your time. If, if you like this episode, feel free to uh, leave us a comment, five-star review on iTunes. It, it helps us with our ranking and give us feedback. If you love what we're, the message we're trying to spread, if you have other questions, feel free to reach out to me at backtalkdoc.com. And Hunter, once again, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.